worship at Hollywood United Methodist Church. We are so glad you have joined us in person and online as we celebrate the second Sunday of Epiphany as well as Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday weekend. Let us now stand as we are able for our opening hymns.
right. Good morning. Uh, if any young people or young at heart people want to come up here uh, and join me, please take a moment to do so. No pressure. I know it's harder when there's few people. I'm not scary. I'm fun. All right. I'll do this solo, and I'll lean on all of you, which is great. I am a professional improviser, so this works. Uh, this is April Olt, coordinator of children's ministries here. Yay. Thank you for joining me, Maddie and Terrence. I appreciate it. As we think about what this weekend represents, uh, what this cycle of sermons and ministry represents, one of the things that we keep talking about um, as we have our, our children's lesson and also as adults is what this means um, to embrace peace. Uh, and I think I have a hard time explaining it or, or recognizing it sometimes. And I feel like God's ideal for us is this peaceful world for all creation. Have you been talking, have we been talking a lot about peace, Maddie? I feel like I've talked about it a lot. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, Zuki and I were talking about it. We're visual learners. Um, and, and in the words of both the gospel and as we lean into, into poetry, into art, and specifically into the words of Martin Luther King Jr., world peace through nonviolent means is neither absurd nor attainable. All other methods had failed. Thus, we must begin anew. We can very well set a mood of peace out of which a system of peace can be built. And I think that's one of the things in all of my ministry, I get a little emotional, that we want to we wanna embrace. What does that feel like? How do we recognize that? So one of the activities that we do is we create a, a book, a visual, whether we speak in words, whether we speak in images, what does that look like? So when I think about it, what is peace? Peace is when we use our words, not our hands. And it's a simple lesson that we've talked about. Have you used that before? Have you heard that before? Use your words, not your hands. Um, so if I ask you, what can you say when someone upsets you? What is something you've said before when someone's upset you? You can just walk away or say thanks for the information to make them upset. Yeah. Ooh, so yes, if you didn't hear that, you can just walk away or say thank you and it turns it back on them, right? That is incredibly powerful. So when we work together, one of the things that we're going to talk about both in our ministry and here at church is, is what can you do to help your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? And, and to that end, this is one of my, my favorite books that Annalie and I share, uh, and, and Terrence was sharing. This is something that Maddie recognizes as well, whoever you are. And this is really that our neighbors are anyone uh, in the entire world across the globe, whether what are whoever we are, whatever our homes look like, or our families look like, or our schools, or our buildings, or our gardens, or our animals. Um, and so that is another way that we lean in and to think about what peace is. How do we explain what peace is? And we're going to create another little book that's um, peace is accepting that we are all unique and different. Peace is making amends if you make a mistake or hurt someone. What have you done? What can you do to let people know that you are sorry? What are some things that you've done to let people know you're sorry? I can do something they were meant to do to 
that they didn't want to do or they were really regretting that doing, and I can assist them with that. I love that, Maddie. Thank you for sharing that. And I know, Maddie, you're on the spot, so I really appreciate this. Sometimes it is using our actions, right, in a positive way, that it may not be using our words. It is showing other people, um, which can be so powerful. And the final uh, one that is the page in our book that we're going to look at today is love is, a, a piece is loving each other as much as possible and knowing that there are little things that we can do all of the time, uh, that there are words that we can say, that there are actions that we can do. And so when we think about moving forward, what this, what this uh, weekend means for us, us as a people, finding those ways that we see all of us as a neighbor, that we find things that we can love and respect in the things that make each of us unique in our talents. Let us pray together. Dearest Lord, thank you for the blessing that we have to be here together in a place that celebrates all of our unique talents. Help us to find ways to share, explain, and show what peace is and what peace feels like for all of your people and all your creation. And all God's children said... Amen. And we have the opportunity right now to, in a um, distancing way, show peace and love to those around us as we wave, give the peace sign, and, and bless those around us. Let us now join our hearts with our choir as we begin a time of prayer. whose spirit moved over the waters at the dawn of creation. Hear our prayers for all who thirst today, especially those in Tonga suffering from this weekend's tsunami that has provided abundant but dangerous water. We pray for those who are spiritually thirsty, who long to know your presence but don't know where to find you. We pray for those who are alone and without hope, those who long to feel needed and loved, those who are searching for meaning and purpose. We pray for all who are physically thirsty, who don't have enough water to drink, or who have to be content with water that is unclean. 
We pray for all who are thirsty for healing of mind, body, or spirit, especially those in our community. Sarah, Ruth, Dottie, Becky, Joey, and the Ortega family on yet another loss. We also lift up those that we carry in our hearts, which we offer to you during this moment of silence. God, we pray for those who are thirsty for justice, who long for an end to racial inequities, and those who are working toward a respect for all faiths, and especially an end to anti-Semitism and its worst manifestations. Loving God, we ask that you would open our hearts to the needs of all who thirst. Give us courage to work together, especially on this weekend, for justice, to stand alongside those who are thirsty for equality of all kinds, but especially voter equality. May we remember the words of your servant Martin, that voting is the foundation stone of political action. And let us once again commit ourselves to seek peace with justice for all your children. <clears throat> In the name of Jesus Christ, the source of living water, we pray now the prayer that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And good morning. It is good to see those of you who are gathered here, and we welcome those of you who are online this morning. In my prayer, I referenced the tsunami that took place over this weekend. Um, our own Olympian PETA has set up a, uh, a GoFundMe, but also there will be a response from UMCOR to the families that uh, we know and the many people who have been affected by the tsunami in Tonga. So I would ask that you give one of those ways and uh, in a moment, I'll talk to you about giving, and you can earmark it for, uh, for Tonga Relief. You got something in your e inbox this week? At least I hope you did, because if you did, that means that you have a giving statement from last year. Uh, so you have to go on, you have to open that, and you have to click on the link in the email to download your giving statement. But please do that, because that link will expire next Sunday night. This week we have the first of our two town hall meetings on Thursday night at 7 and then the following Monday at 7 as well. We're wanting to get an, an inkling from you all about how you would like to see us proceed in ministry during this hybrid era that looks like it's going to last for a long time. What do you need from the church, from this community of faith? What would you like to see us do? What can we do better? Uh, or what ideas do you bring for us to be in ministry together? So uh, join us on a Zoom link. Um, so that'll be, the link will be in the email, the e-news on Wednesday, or you can email me and I can send it to you directly. There are multiple ways of giving, which will be up on our screen in a minute. 
Uh, and so please take advantage of one of those. If you're here in person and have an offering today, there are baskets in the narthex uh, for that gift. We are, this is our third, third, third Sunday of the month, and so we are going to have a call to action every third Sunday beginning this month. And today we are privileged to welcome Dr. Louis Abramson, who is the chair of the Central Hollywood Neighborhood Council. I met Louis some years ago as part of Hollywood Forward. He is a passionate, passionate advocate for uh, folks who call the streets home and for us getting a handle on what the realities of homelessness are here in Hollywood. So we welcome him today, and we will have a question and answer with him in the patio uh, following worship, but we really would like to welcome him now to speak. Um, should I remove my mask? Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you, Reverend. Uh, I'm Louis Abramson. I chair the Homelessness Committee of the Central Hollywood Neighborhood Council. And I want to first just open by saying thank you for welcoming me to your congregation today and to what has been a, a beautiful service. And it reminds me that while um, there are many things to scream about, we should all sing more. So uh, I think it's, I'm going to talk about homelessness for a little bit today. And I think it's just important that we all sort of get set in what the facts are around the size of this problem, because until we know how big something is, we can't get our arms around it. So, in the latest numbers in Hollywood, where we are, there are roughly one in 30 people who are our neighbors uh, are unhoused. Uh, about 90% of them are unsheltered, which means they have to spend the night on the street. What this works out to is a little over 4,000 people. And of course, those people reflect all of the other structural inequities we know too well. So roughly 72% are BIPOC individuals. 34% uh, are black and 30% are Latino. An even more shocking statistic, sadly, is that over half of them are under 24. So they're what we call transition-aged youth. And we are a major center of youth homelessness uh, in the city, and obviously um, that's one of the deepest tragedies imaginable. Of course, also, LGBTQ plus people are overrepresented. About a third of unhoused folks fall in that category, and 39% have experienced domestic violence. So that's the lay of the land. It's a big problem. And I'm an astrophysicist by training. I study space. But even for me, these are very, very large numbers and tough to, to think about. The superstructure that has arisen to try to help these folks is equally complicated. In our part of the world, get ready, at least the mayor's office, two city council districts, two county departments, one joint powers agency, seven professional nonprofits, four volunteer nonprofits, two private security teams, and countless residents, businesses, and faith groups like yours are all involved in addressing this humanitarian crisis. This is a very complicated problem. It's a very large problem. Um, and COVID hasn't made it any easier. Obviously, as it's reduced our ability to be together, it's reduced the ability of service providers, all of those people I just mentioned, to actually engage in life-saving activities with folks on the street. As we all know too well, it's also made it hard to keep our streets sanitary, and, and that affects people living on those streets. It, keeps it, it makes it hard for us to provide the street cleaning we need so that encampments are not filled with um, pests and also hotspots for disease. And lastly, it's made it hard for folks on the street to get access to other social services they need that don't have to do directly with homelessness, but that impact homelessness. For example, drug treatment. And we know that overdose deaths have risen by 33% last year. 
and this is largely because places for folks to get treatment are not open. So, that's how things are. And yes, it's a dark picture, but there are many ways to get involved. There are opportunities to learn. You, can, you are always welcome to come to my Central Hollywood Neighborhood Council Homelessness Committee meetings, typically the first Monday of the month at 7. But if you live around here, there's other neighborhood councils, Hollywood Hills West, Hollywood uh, United, all of which will happily educate you along with the Los Angeles Homelessness Services Authority uh, and providers like the center at Blessed Sacrament, just down the road. There are also opportunities for you to do, for you to directly get involved in the work to help this crisis. Right now, as we speak, my friends at SELA, uh, which is a neighborhood homeless coalition that's dedicated to connecting housed and unhoused people, are, is sending volunteers throughout our area to deliver food and water and services to all of our unhoused neighbors. We leave every other Sunday from the police station down on Wilcox and Fountain. You're more than welcome to get in touch with me and join that. Um, but if you live in the valley, there's also the NoHo Home Alliance. Um, and for everybody everywhere, the homeless count, which was supposed to take place January 27th, but will now take place in February. This critical effort where all of us are involved in gathering all of those statistics I mentioned at the top to know the size of this problem. The last thing is to advocate. As Reverend Cathy mentioned, Hollywood Forward is a gigantic coalition we have here of service providers, businesses, uh, and lay residents to advocate as one for the needs of a whole Hollywood community housed and unhoused for the resources we need. So I'll close with this. I would ask us all to just recognize that this problem is very hard and that we must approach it humbly and in good faith with a recognition that our systems are the enemy, not each other, and with a firm conviction that affirmative solutions are necessary, urgent, and possible. What this means is that we must approach this problem with grace, which is a learned skill, and I am thankful to have the opportunity to engage this topic at a place where it is practiced. Thank you.
A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I would give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give, be, I'm sorry, the water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to drink water, to draw water. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left with her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Thanks be to God. When I was in the fifth grade, just a few days, in fact, before my twin and I's 11th birthday, we moved from a small town in Minnesota to a slightly bigger town, really a small city in Iowa. Our first night in our new house, I remember so well. The lights were not on yet. We had just arrived around five, and we were all piled up in sleeping bags on the third floor of this drafty, empty Victorian house, eating pizza by flashlight, and we were anxious because the very next day, we were going to start a new school. Now, my mama did not believe in downtime, so bright and early, she drove my sisters and I to this two-story, turn-of-the-century brick elementary school just a few blocks away. Our moving truck that had all the things of our previous life had not yet arrived, and yet we found ourselves starting school as the new kids, again, one month before the end of the school year. Now, it was a little bit awkward for us. Uh, my sister and I had been in middle school where we lived before. We were on our way to the big kids' time, and we found ourselves back in elementary school with no friends, um, with the oldest kids in the school, and that mean that we had to do recess. Y'all remember recess? Anybody remember saying recess was their favorite time of day? It was not my favorite time of day. <laughs> I preferred the books. 
The entire schoolyard where this recess took place was a large, cracked, black asphalt lot, no trees, unshaded, in the blinding, humid sun of a late Iowa spring. There wasn't a lot to offer. Four square boxes painted. Who here is a four square champion, anyone? Or is that like just a Midwestern thing? <laughs> Hopscotch, jump rope. But in the corner, in the corner, was the glorious pole of the tetherball. And I loved tetherball. And what I lacked in skill, I certainly made up for in enthusiasm. And so I found myself in that very first week in the new school, maybe on the second or third day, on the playground, this asphalt parking lot, staring down a tetherball in front of a group of kids I had just met. Now, who here has played tetherball before, anyone? Oh, good, 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 good. I don't know if they still play it now, if it passes playground safety checks. Um, maybe it shouldn't, you'll see from the story I'm about to tell. <laughs> But the way you play, right, it's, this, it's, it's, a, it's a ball, like a volleyball, only heavier, on a long rope attached to a pole. And the way you play, you can play with two people or four people, but the objective is to hit that ball until it totally circles the pole, right? Completely circles the pole. And your opponent is supposed to block you, right? And whoever is able to get the, the, the ball to wrap itself around the pole, they win. Um, and so I'm not sure how much skill is involved in tetherball, if there's like any strategy or anything, right? <laughs> but what I do know, I knew then, and I still don't, I know now because I still like to play, is that the best way to win is to hit that ball as ferociously as you possibly can. And the harder you hit it, the more likely it is that you're gonna win. And so there I was in this hot, humid spring day, maybe trying to impress my new classmates, embroiled in a heated match of tetherball. I don't know who was winning, and I can't remember who I was playing against, but what I do remember with crystal clarity is the moment that I reached up for one super high-powered assault on that ball, and it was a direct hit, and I sent it flying. It was good. It was a hard hit. It went out with power, and my opponent could not block the ball. And here it came around the pole, ready to circle it to victory. Only it never made it around the pole. <laughs> Instead, it made direct contact with my face. <laughs> Which seated in somehow not only knocking me to the ground in front of all of my classmates, but also knocking out an already loose baby tooth, which went flying, with a gush of blood all over my clothes. So, yeah, it was painful. <laughs> And yes, it was super embarrassing. And I do remember it like it was yesterday, all of the details. I was ushered off to the nurse's office to lay on a bed because my unsightly shirt was super bloody and they didn't want me to go back to the classroom. And it was before cell phones um, and we didn't have a landline yet at my house because we had just moved in, it wasn't turned on. And so the nurse was not able to reach my parents and I was there in the nurse's office, lonely, feeling sad, feeling embarrassed, when a little girl came down from my classroom, and I don't know if my teacher sent her or she asked to come. We'll call her Jenny. But she came down to visit me and sit with me and tell me jokes and tell me the gossip. And I didn't feel so lonely anymore. And a friendship was born. 
Now, Jenny only lived a few blocks from me, and we spent a, a lot of time together that summer. We went to the same middle school the next year. We were in the same talented and gifted classes. And soon, we were BFFs. We were both smart and funny and interested in the world. We both went to and were pretty involved in our own churches. Jenny went to a large Baptist, and I'm thinking back on it now, perhaps evangelical church. And I went to the local Methodist church just a few blocks from my house, which was thriving but small and had about a dozen kids in the youth group. Youth group at Jenny's church was on Wednesday night, and there were kids from all over and a super cool youth pastor. And I would beg my mom to let me go, and sometimes she would let me. The way they talked about Jesus was different. It was strange to me. Remember, I'm only like 12 years old. There was a lot of blood and fire and sin. There was a lot of talk about purity and virginity and stuff like that. But I kind of looked past all my discomfort and my mom's, frankly, rank disapproval. <laughs> because when there was a lock-in, who's been to a lock-in? Okay, a lock-in, this is for the, for the kids, it's a great thing for the adults, maybe not so much fun, but <laughs> a lock-in is when you spend the whole night in the church getting up to activities without your parents, under the guise of your youth pastors, and it feels awesome. Anyway, when the church had a lock-in, there were like 200 kids there, and many of them were very cute boys, and it was a major production. There was like a concert and a DJ and big speakers and flashing lights and very dramatic altar calls, which I had never experienced in my entire Methodist life. At Jenny's church, all of the pastors and all of the youth leaders were men. Now, at my middle school church, the youth group was a little bit different. When we had a lock-in, there was no flashing lights or speakers, no glamour, though it was super fun and I totally loved it. There was a handful of us and we watched movies and we played basketball. We roller skated in the gym on skates that were older than us. We learned to make cinnamon rolls from a 90-year-old church lady. We talked about Jesus and his love and we did not have altar calls and we almost always did a service project and I love it. Our pastors were also male, but our youth leaders were women and women were all over the life of the church. The differences between our two faith communities were very real, but I figured it was all the same God and we were all headed in the same direction. So what's the big deal? Jenny and I became very close and I ate a lot of meals at her house. She spent the night at my house, I spent the night at her house. We talked about boys, we had adventures. Our parents even carpooled. My mom drove us to school and her mom picked us up and brought us home. But one day in the eighth grade, my mom asked me to come sit with her in the living room. Jenny's mother had called my mom and told her that we couldn't carpool together anymore. She didn't feel that I should spend more time with Jenny. She felt that I was not a good influence on her child. I was loud. I was a little bit, like just a little bit outspoken. <laughs> I talked to adults when they talked to me instead of remaining silent. I had too many opinions about everything, which is still true today. And for her mom, it wasn't biblical and it wasn't right. They didn't want me to lead their daughter astray. So no more sleepovers, no more lock-ins, 
no more BFF. Now in some ways they were right. I did have a lot of opinions. I talked to adults, I had something to say because I did. I asked a lot of questions. I cared about stuff. And in my home and in my church, those things were valued. I was raised to be an obedient child and my mother was much stricter than almost any other mother I knew, but I was never raised to be submissive, ever. So Jenny and I could no longer be friends and I was sad for her and I was sad for me and I guess I'm still a little sad because I'm feeling emotional. We lost touch. A year later, I moved to a new city. Now I was in high school. And I heard through the grapevine from friends, which was like handwritten letters, read in pink and aqua ink and the scrolling letters, that Jenny's parents had pulled her out of public school to homeschool her, to keep her safe from the temptation of boys, and to prepare her for her future life as a wife and mother. The same year that that happened to Jenny and her family, I preached my first sermon in the pulpit of First United Methodist Church of Des Moines, Iowa, under the guiding hands of pastors, Reverend Del Dawes and Reverend Dennis Tevis. We were sophomores in high school. What does Jesus say about women? And why does it matter? This week, we continue our sermon series exploring what would Jesus say about issues that are important to us. Last week, we heard from Pastor Kathy. Next week, I believe we're gonna hear from Pastor Mark on critical race theory, like super exciting. But today, we're gonna talk about what Jesus says about women and why it matters. I knew for sure when I was growing up what different churches said about women. As a girl who grew up in this culture, I have felt its impact time and time again. As a woman in ministry, more than one person of faith, sometimes clergy, has sought me out to tell me what my vocation should truly be. I know what they have to say, but what does Jesus say? Many of you took a moment to answer the same question. I posted it on my Facebook page, and if you haven't had a chance to read that thread, I invite you to do so. I encourage you to visit it because it's full of inspiring and life-giving stories about women in the church. Pastor Jane Voigts, who serves in Palm Springs, responded that Jesus doesn't talk about us, or doesn't talk directly about women, or even about men for that matter. Thank you very much. What Jesus does instead is do. We learn from the Bible Jesus' thoughts about women from the profound relationships and interactions that he has with them. In today's scripture, we hear again the familiar story of the woman at the well. We heard a slightly abbreviated version of the story, but I think it's one that's very familiar. Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well, alone, at noontime, drawing water. She's startled to see him, and it is striking to us readers that she is alone. Furthermore, in her dialogue with Jesus, it is revealed that she has been married several times, and that the man she is living with now is not her husband. Jesus knows this, and he names it. And then he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. Now, in the frequent telling of this story in many sermons, a lot of time, I think, has been sent 
on the sinfulness of this woman, her ostracization, and her supposedly sordid past. It's a rare sermon preached, you'll hear it here though, that explores the cultural conditions that might have led her to multiple marriages, like the expected practice of widows to marry their husband's brother. In fact, they didn't have a choice usually that could lead to multiple marriages. We don't ask a lot of questions about the Samaritan woman in her life. Mostly, we remember her as a sinner that Jesus forgave. And we leave it at that. Rarely do we focus on the part that is most striking to me about this story. This woman, this woman at the well who folks then and now judge with great ease. I mean, just look at the disciples in this story. They don't ask her questions. They don't even acknowledge her. They ignore her. This woman is the first person in the entirety of the gospel whom Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah to. It's not the men in that town, not even his own disciples, not the leaders of the temple or the rulers of the day, but to this Samaritan woman, a figure considered with contempt then and even by us for some 2,000 years. And her book, Jesus Feminist, which I totally recommend, this is awesome reading, completely, completely approachable, very refreshing. In her book, Sarah Bessie writes that the woman of this of the woman in the well. She was among the least valued and most dishonored of her day. Yet Jesus engaged her in serious theological discussion. In fact, hers is the longest personal conversation with Jesus ever recorded in the scripture. And it was also the first time the words, I am the Messiah, were spoken with from, from his lips. And she became the first evangelist. In a deeply, deeply patriarchal society, Jesus relates to her as an equal. He is direct, he is clear, he offers her hope and grace, he treats her with respect. She is thoughtful, she debates him, she asks questions, and she finds truth in his words and then turns and departs, eager to spread the news. How we teach this story matters. How is it that we don't grow up knowing that the first person that Christ reveals his divinity to is this lady? Why are we not taught that? Why is it that we are not taught that she was so moved that she stopped what she was doing and she went on immediately to do the work of building the kingdom? Instead, again and again, we focus on her personal life, her sexuality, her supposedly sinful nature. A sinful nature, friends, that is shared by all human beings, but frankly, unduly focused on in almost all of our retellings of women in the Bible. I have attended church nearly every Sunday for the past 30 years. And in my youth, I grew up in an affirming church that celebrated my call to ministry and had lots of women in leadership. Not once did I hear a sermon properly focusing on the woman as the well as the first evangelist and celebrating her role. What I learned about that powerful story was her sin and Jesus' power to forgive. Again and again throughout the New Testament, Jesus has powerful encounters with women. He breaks cultural barriers and taboos in his interactions with them every single time. Now in this same book, Jesus Feminist, religion writer and blogger Sarah Bessie explores the Bible's view of women. 
It's a wonderful book, like I said, I recommend ordering it. It's on um, Amazon, very easy to get. She explores it and asks us to understand the ministry of Jesus in the context of our own life in the church. She also does some real deep digging into sort of the polarizing differences that the church, and I mean the big church, not the Methodist church, but the big church, looks at the role of women and the work that we do. Looking at Jesus' interaction with women, Bessie notes, during his time on earth, Jesus subverted the social norms dictating how a rabbi spoke to a woman, to the rich, the powerful, the housewife, the mother-in-law, the despised, the prostitute, the destitute, the adulteress, the mentally ill and the demon-possessed, the poor. He spoke to women directly instead of through their male headship standards, and that was contrary to the order of the day and even to some of our own religious sects of today. Again and again, Jesus breaks taboo, but so do the women that he engages with. They have no choice but to break with the cultural and religious prescripts that assert patriarchal and hierarchical control over their lives. The hemorrhaging woman, denied a name in this telling of the gospel, defies social and religious customs of her day to seek out the one she knows can bring healing into her life. She has been bleeding for a dozen years. She is alone in the world. She is exhausted financially, and she has been ritualistically isolated. She's desperate for healing, and she knows in her deep heart of hearts, that if she can just touch the teacher, even the hem of his garment, something profound will happen in her life. So she breaks all social custom and religious purity laws and enter into a crowd that has been pressing on Jesus. And when she touches his robe, Jesus feels the power go out of him and heal her. He is in a crowd of men seeking his attention, pressing on him, clamoring, but it's from this woman, this woman, that he encounters real faith, real courage, and she's the only one that he deigns to speak to. He touches her, he talks to her directly and with respect, and he sets her free from her suffering. In the Gospel of John, we learn the story of a woman who the men of the synagogue has accused of adultery. They bring her before Jesus, prepared to stone her and invite him to offer her judgment. We note that in this story, there is no mention of her partner in the adultery. And my mama always taught me that it took two to tango. It's just her. Just her being accused, alone, in the grips of angry, powerful, and self-righteous dudes Jesus never even engages their accusations. He doesn't give them credence. And instead, he turns it back around on the men. He challenges their arrogance and their violence and their customs by inviting whoever is free of sin to throw that first stone. Just reach down and grab it. Go for it. And none are brave enough to respond, and they slink away one by one. And when he is done, he turns and invites her to respond. 
He encourages her to choose a different path and sends her on her way. He acknowledges that she's got a past, but it doesn't define her and simply tells her to sin no more. He trusts in her ability to make different choices. There are so many examples. I had to cut out like five slides here. In fact, I could preach on this until tomorrow, but I won't. (laughs) Hopefully we'll save it for a sermon series in the future. There's more than we can dig into here. The gospel is full of them, and each deserves their own sermon. Jesus' life and ministry is filled with the presence of women, even if we don't always name them. It's a 14-year-old woman girl who brings him into the world unaided with only the company of her partner, who then protects and raises him in an um, an era of violence. In Jesus' death and resurrection, it is women who remain at his dying feet when the male disciples truck it out of town. And it is women who first go to his tomb, who first experience the resurrected Christ, and who are given the task of delivering the news to the frightened and hiding male disciples that Jesus had chosen. As Sarah Bessie points out in her book, even though the word of a woman was not considered sufficient proof in court at that time, Mary Magdalene was the first witness of the resurrected Christ. Mary Magdalene, don't even get me started on how she's been smeared. Once again, a topic for another time. What would have happened if Mary Magdalene and the other women who were with her had capitulated to the customs of their time or their fear of what they were experiencing because surely it must have been frightening? Would the world even know about the risen Christ if not for their courage? Dorothy Sayer, an essayist published at the beginning of the 20th century and one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, reflected in her essay, are women human this way? And I really like it, so I'm gonna read it to you. She says, perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been another like him. A prophet, a teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as, oh, the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and their arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, Um, never urged them to be feminine, or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole of the gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could guess but from the words and deed of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. In my life in the church, even in the progressive church, I have heard the ladies, God bless them, or the women, God help us, here they come again. I've heard it and I know you've heard it, but it doesn't come from Jesus. Women have been an essential part of Christ's ministry since he walked the earth. 
We know about what Jesus says about women by the dignity and respect that he treated them with and the crucial and critical roles that they played in evangelizing and building God's church. I wanna thank you again for contributing to that online testimony about the powerful women in your own faith communities, about the preachers and teachers, the theologians and professors, the bishops who raised us, the bell ringers and missionaries, the choir leaders and singers and the church custodians who keep this building running, the hospitality makers and the pew sitters, the worship arts pioneers, the bake sale goddesses, thank you so much, the church finance administrators, nursery attendants, the governance board chairs, the ushers, the homeless work coordinators, our teachers and the United Methodist women and all the work that they have done to change the world and so many more, shaping us, teaching us, molding us. But make no mistake, each role was struggled for and won with countless sacrifices because this church still has a lot of catching up to do when it comes to following the teaching of Christ. For the sake of the gospel, women must speak and teach and minister and prophesy too. For the sake of the gospel, a woman must be free to walk in her God-breathed self, to walk in whatever vocation and season of life and place in life. We have to learn these lessons. I'm in the end zone, by the way. The church of Christ suffers when we don't. When the essential nature of women in the work of the gospel is forgotten or goes unknown or untaught, then there's a tendency to put women in other roles, to seek to disempower them. The abuse of women, the oppression of women, the silencing of women, often thrives in full witness of the faith community. But not just women, all people. The struggle continues and the need for witness that reflects the practice and teachings of Christ is profound. Women's reproductive rights are under attack. Our very autonomy and ability to make decisions about our body and future is being challenged in law under the language of faith. Two of the people who sit on the Supreme Court the highest secular law of the land are men who have been credibly accused of sexual harassment and assault of women, and yet they have been celebrated by their faith communities repeatedly. These two will weigh on decisions about health and personal sovereignty, as well as rights for LGBT people, immigrants, people of color, voting rights, worker rights, and so much more. Women cis or trans, non-binary people, and gender non-conforming people are an essential part of understanding God's plan for the world and our role in it. And when they are removed from exploring and participating in that plan, we cannot hope to realize, we cannot hope to realize the kingdom of God here on earth. There's no place in God's church for patriarchy and its spiritual, emotional, and physical violence. It is a tool of man, born after the fall and wielded to control. And in our redemptive ongoing work, we are called to dismantle it. Now let's just take a moment to enjoy the cuteness of this slide. The one on the right is of course me. You love those glasses, they're humongous. The one on the left is my twin sister with her first and only perm in life. <laughs> and we are robed for alkalite duty, circa the seventh grade. Look at my smile. 
This was my first liturgical role in the church. My church was inviting me then, even then, I think this is like the sixth grade or the seventh grade, to be a part of the life of the church, to put my faith into work in the world. It was opening doors for me and asking more of me. At the same time that my middle school BFF, Jenny, was starting to experiencing a much narrower understanding of faith and her place and her role, not just in the church, but in the world. At the same time, my world was expanding and hers was retracting. Both paths shaped and shepherded by the church. My church prepared me for the work that we are called to do, not just inside, but beyond the walls. We are obviously a part of a faith community where women lead. Can I get a hallelujah? All right. Holla! <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we can relax. Dismantling the, patriarchy, dismantling the patriarchy is more than a rally cry or a t-shirt or a meme, though I love to post them. It is an everyday spiritual work of both invitation and reform. It involves seeing the blessing inside each individual and inviting them to share their gifts with his community and the world. It means both teaching and living Jesus and building strong communities of equity, welcome, and justice. And it means speaking truth to power, stepping back so that others can step forward, and in turn, stepping forward when you are called because you will be called. I look at our community and I think, who's gonna stand here next? Is it gonna be Charlotte or Maddie or Precious or Bella or Jack or little baby Daniel who we baptized last week? Will it be one of you? How is God calling you to serve in the world? Whatever that way is, the church affirms you. You are not only welcome here, but you are needed here. With whatever gifts you bring, whatever path you are on, you are welcome. You are wanted and you are worthy. You are essential for the work of building the beloved community needs all hands. And it takes place in the house of God and out on the streets of Hollywood and beyond. You are needed, you are blessed, and you are loved. Can I get an amen? chosen. You are loved, you are blessed, you are needed, and you are affirmed.
and invite those who may not be feeling that way to understand that truth. We are all needed to build this kingdom of God, to do this beloved community work, to build a new and future peace. And you have what it takes. Go in peace and do the loving world, work of God in the world. Amen. Thank you.